0: Hey there, podcast listeners. Thanks so much for making Tell Me Something I Don't Know such a big hit out of the gate. We really appreciate your listening and leaving all those nice reviews. This is our sixth and final episode of our first season, but don't worry, we will be back very soon with many more episodes. We're already taping in New York City and soon in Boston at the Wilbur Theater, in Washington, D.C. at Sixth and I., So to buy tickets, visit TMSIDK.com. You can also sign up there if you want to be a contestant. And if you subscribe to this podcast, you will never miss an episode. You can also find us on social media at TMSIDK underscore show. Thanks again.
1: Why do I read? Why do I have conversations?
2: Why do I travel? Why do I have to go to school? Why do I pay attention? Why do
3: I pay attention? Because I want to be amused. Because I want to get outside my comfort zone.
2: But mostly. Mostly.
3: Mostly
1: Mostly because.
3: Because I want to find out out stuff. stuff. Find out stuff. Find
1: out stuff.
0: (laughs) Because I want you to to tell tell me something something I don't don't know. know. For instance, I bet you didn't know that there is such a thing as A
4: robotic rectum.
0: Yes, a robotic rectum. Tom Whipple, science editor for The Times of London, has a story about a new invention out of the Department of Surgery and Cancer at Imperial College London.
4: The idea of this device was it was to teach people to perform prostate exams. It provided realistic feedback to your fingers um, and helped people to understand how to be... Firm, but not too firm, when investigating a prostate.
0: The inventors had received advice on how to make a realistic rectum.
4: And that advice came from a very special man. He is Britain's only rectal teaching assistant. He is a peripatetic bottom-for-hire who travels around the country's medical schools Offering up his experienced rectum to the fingers of inexperienced medical students so that they can better learn how to perform prostate exams. And it was particularly altruistic of him because, of course, if the robotic rectum works as planned, then he might well be putting himself out of the job. Welcome to Tell Me Something
0: I Don't Know. I'm Stephen Dubner, and our theme tonight, Fool Me Once. Something I Don't Know is an entirely new kind of game show. Rather than trying to stump contestants with arcane knowledge, we ask contestants to tell us their arcane knowledge, to tell us their IDKs, their I-don't-knows, to judge these IDKs, and eventually to pick a winner. We've assembled a panel of extremely interesting people tonight. Would you please welcome tonight's panelists, the Jesuit priest James Martin, the poker champion Annie Duke, and the comedian Hannibal Burris? I am uh, so, so happy to have the three of you here tonight. Uh, We'll start with you, Father James Martin. Here's what we know about you. We know that you are an editor with the Jesuit magazine America. We know you've written several books, including the New York Times bestsellers Jesus, A Pilgrimage, and The Jesuit Guide to Almost Everything. We know that you were the official chaplain of Colbert Nation. So, what don't we yet know about Father James Martin?
5: When I was 17, I worked in a movie theater as an usher, and I spent 12-hour shifts popping popcorn. That's and
0: my... would you consider that a pretty good training for the priesthood in some way?
5: Uh, yeah, it was surprisingly good. Uh, it was um, something, though, that uh, taught me to avoid popcorn, because one of the things we learned was that uh, popcorn is stored for months and months and months. And where you see those things that say freshly popped popcorn, that is a lie.
0: <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Good to have a priest around to tell us who's lying. Good. Okay, our, our next panelist, Annie Duke. Annie, we know that you were so close to being done with your PhD in cognitive linguistics at the University of Pennsylvania when you quit academia to play poker professionally. We know that you're one of the most celebrated poker players in the world, as is your brother, Howard Letterer, and that you, among other things, won a World Series of Poker bracelet in Omaha High Low. We know that you are now a sought-after expert in decision-making. So, Annie Duke, tell us something we don't know about you.
2: Uh, so, when I was little, I used to trade my dimes for nickels with my brother because the nickels were bigger.
3: <laughs> and your brother and, was smarter. Sorry. Well, was,
2: uh, well, to be fair, he was older, which okay. makes him smarter.
3: How much older uh, was he?
2: Two years. That was a lot. which is like eight and six.
3: Yeah, that's when you learn about nickels.
2: That's that what, Right. right.
3: That's right when you
2: find out that your brother is going to grow up to be a poker player.
0: <laughs> what it, you wanted the nickels because they were bigger and you thought they were worth more, or you just preferred the nickels? No,
2: I thought they were worth more because they were larger. That makes sense. Why, why are nickels bigger than dimes if they're worth less money? That doesn't even make any sense.
0: Father Martin, that is a mystery of the universe I've always wanted to know. <laughs> and our final panelist, the comedian, writer, and
3: actor Hannibal Burris, So pleased to have you here. Thank you. We're going to leave that, that rectum story unchecked. Uh, you will not this believe... This just really wanted to help science. All right. Hannibal, here's
0: what we know about you. Your national stand-up tour is called the Hannibal Montanable Experience. Sure. <laughs> we know that you... Um, I'm just going to read this. Yeah. We know that you had your left testicle removed because of testicular torsion. I'm not sure why we know that or how we know that, but that's, we do. That's false. Is that false? False. <laughs>
3: Right. false. And there's uh, somebody from last night that could fact check that. You went to the doctor last I night, you're th- saying? I, did it. <laughs> I um, no, I had testicular torsion, so they told me if we didn't get the surgery done, that one of my balls could die, and so we, we did the surgery. I see. Yeah. Now You know how much it costs if you don't have health insurance to get your ball fixed? Like $13,000. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's Worth how that? much it costs. Yeah, you know, I like both of them. All right. Symmetry. I'm into symmetry.
0: I feel like we already know quite a bit about you, but is there anything else we don't yet know about Hannibal
3: Buress? Uh, I haven't watched any of the Hannibal Lecter movies (laughs) out of spite. (laughs) Out of spite. I watch them. Uh People say, oh, like Hannibal Lecter? And I'll say, who is that? What is that? I'll say, you know the movie Silence of the Lambs? Oh, yeah. I got to check it out. I never do. All right, so tonight's
0: show, a priest, a poker player, and a comedian walk into a game show. Let's see what happens. It's time to play Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Here's the way it's going to work. Contestants from the audience will come on stage and deliver their IDKs. Panelists, it will be your job to grill or poke and prod, ask questions, whatever you'd like, of each contestant. And once they've all presented, you will vote on a winner. Panelists, there are three simple criteria you'll use to judge the contestants' IDKs. Number one, does their IDK surprise you? Is it something you truly did not know? Number two, is it worth knowing? And number three, is their IDK demonstrably true? And to help with that demonstrably true part, we need one more thing. We need a real-time human fact checker. So would you please welcome Sean Ramaswaram. Sean makes radio and podcasts with WNYC Studios, including Radio Lab's Supreme Court spinoff called More Perfect. So, Sean, I believe this show has a lot in common with the Supreme Court. How do you plan to handle your fact-checking duties?
6: Same way I do all my journalism, Google and Bing. Um, but to, to show my, my prowess, I've already verified that movie theater popcorn is kind of gross. Uh, the nickel used to be smaller than the dime, but in 1866 they changed it because it was too hard to handle, made it bigger to also eventually complicate poker champion Annie Duke's feelings about her brother. Yes. And and I saw Hannibal's testicles last night, he is too. He's a doctor.
0: It's going to be that kind of night. Before we bring up our first contestant, a final word to our panelists. It takes a lot of nerve for these audience contestants to get on stage. So in your questioning... I would encourage you to be...
2: As mean as possible?
0: Uh, as mean as possible this is, is your a good point? option. Okay. okay. I was going to reach back to the <laughs> prostate exam and what we learned firm but not too firm. <laughs> <laughs> Especially because later on you, the judges, shall be judged when we spin what we like to call the wheel of maximum danger.
3: <laughs>
0: Nicely done, people. All right, it's time to play Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Tonight's theme you will recall, is Fool Me Once. Stories of artifice, of bluffing, perhaps, of things seen and unseen. Would you please welcome to the stage our first contestant, A.E. Kieran. Hello. Hello, A.E. I've got three questions for you right off the bat. What's A.E. stand for? Where do you
1: live? What do you do? A.E. is for Anthony Ernest. I live in Fort Greene, Brooklyn, and I am an on-location illustrator. An on-location illustrator, meaning what? I get sent to um, events, performances, fashion shows, jazz bars to sketch whatever's going on for the client. Various different applications.
0: You think we're worth sketching tonight, right here?
1: You handsome group.
0: After you're done presenting your IDK, do you want to sketch the show?
1: I am prepared. Yeah.
0: You got your gear. You got your sketching paraphernalia. All right. So we'll we'll put you to work on that after. Uh, let's get to your IDK. So AE, remember, our panelists are pretty bright people. So
1: what do you know that's worth knowing that you think they don't know? All right. What item is sometimes conspicuously missing from Renaissance paintings? Mm. Oh. Cell phone. Cell, Cell phone?
2: <laughs> <laughs> is, it, is it like on the body? Like a part it of the is body? A body part. Is it like the belly button? Oh.
3: Thumbs.
5: Would we would we be surprised because uh, it's something that we see in uh,
1: current day art, or that wouldn't be embarrassing to us? Is that the idea? No, I mean it's something that's all around us at all times. Left testicles. Air. Did you just say left testicles, Hannibal?
3: I did, I did. and that's the last callback for it. <laughs> you started it, dude. I wasn't. I didn't want to talk about that at all. It was a painful memory. Now I'm, using I'm humor sad to try say to cope I, I with studied
2: Renaissance. Like I took a Renaissance art class as a core course in undergrad. And, and what was missing? Promptly for missing my memory. <laughs>
1: Apparently. Ae, I think you should put us out
0: of our misery. Okay.
1: So I'll answer in a, in a roundabout way. Okay. So most artists would probably tell you that the hands are the most challenging part of the body to draw or paint. I have experience with this because when I was in grad school in the master's program for illustration at SVA here in New York, uh, I had a professor early on when I first entered the program who looked at my portfolio and said that my glaring weak spot was my hands, but that I should take heart because hands are really hard for everybody and they always have been. And that's why back in the day, in the Renaissance the old masters used to charge a separate fee for each visible hand that would be depicted in the painting. And this would be spelled out in contracts before the painting was done. So if you were a wealthy patron that was commissioning a work of art and when you got the estimate back it seemed too high, the hands might be a place that you could skimp. So the next time you're in a museum... And you're walking around, and you see a painting where the hand is, um, you know, placed just so behind a bowl of fruit on the table, or in the drapery of their robe. It's probably because whoever commissioned that painting was too cheap to spring for both hands.
3: Wow,
5: that's so interesting. So, it's a very handy thing
1: to know, isn't it? Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it's my. Ba-dum-boo. And um, you can look up right now, um, one artist in particular who is known to have practiced this is um, the Spanish court painter Diego Velázquez. And so he has a lot of paintings that feature this. Aesop and Mars in particular are both just single-figure paintings where the hands are conspicuously obscured, They're, like plunged into the robe and only one
6: hand is visible. Thanks for making my job so much easier. <laughs>
3: so, uh, so I was right. <laughs> you, were, you were one-fifth right.
0: Yeah, Hannibal. I read about uh, you. Tell me if this—if it seems like nothing I've read about you is true. I think because it all comes from you originally, yeah. but I've read that uh, you had a hand double for a commercial you shot. Is that true?
3: Yeah. I shot this Samsung commercial, and I had—they uh, had a hand double, but when they—they—they they they brought in three people to audition to be my hand double, but none of them were close to my complexion. Ah. Uh. I'm like, who did this? You—they had asked for pictures of my hands to send in. And they had all these dudes that were like Drake's complexion. But even still, because it's corporate protocol, they still wanted to go through and say, okay, put your hand side by side with his. No, we can just look at our faces and see. It... There's no need for me to put my hand by his hand unless he's an X-Man and his special power is absorbing melanin. I think we all should part ways and not waste each other's time. Mm.
0: Were you bothered at all that you were good enough for the commercial, but your hands were not?
3: Oh, no, man. I'm, I'm famous. I don't have time to just be sitting there and doing that. <laughs> I'd rather be in my trailer texting strangers that I've hung out with in the past. Uh, panelists, any more questions you want to ask or
0: comments you want to make about the the invisible hands in Renaissance paintings?
3: How did you feel when your uh, professor told you that you're your hand-drawn sucked.
1: Um, devastated. Yeah. And it was in front of all my classmates, too, so it was oh. kind of humiliating. Man. But I, I will state for the record that after after that humbling experience, I started a new sketchbook and did nothing but three or four pages of hands every day for over a year, and I think these days my hands are looking pretty good, and if you
3: want them, you're going to pay for them.
2: Right. Yeah, so, so when right. you're... There's a
3: lot of people listening, man. You're going to get some weird tweets. Sean, before we finish up with the A.E. Kieran
0: and his IDK, The Invisible Hands, uh, what do you have to say about this?
6: Yeah, I googled uh, Diego Velasquez's paintings, and the first one that came up was uh, a portrait of a horse, and there are no hands in it. So (laughs) it checks out. It looks like there are a lot of artists online on Twitter complaining about how hard it is to paint hands, including one guy on Twitter who wrote, Hands are hard to paint, and that's why in this portrait I did for our anniversary, my wife is shooting two guns and I'm a cobra.
0: A.E. Kieran, thank you so much for playing Tell Me Something I Don't Know. We will look forward to seeing your sketch of the show later. Panelists, later on, you will be asked to rank all our contestants and pick a winner. For now, let's welcome our next contestant, Brian McGran.
3: Brian McGran.
7: Hey, Brian, tell us a little bit about yourself. So I'm a disaster financial specialist. What? <laughs>
0: I just heard I'm a disaster. And yeah. I, yeah. I thought I
3: was certain aspects
7: of my life.
0: And right? I'm thinking you look fine.
7: And my moments. You're a disaster financial specialist? So since Hurricane Katrina, I've been helping communities recover from major disasters. Brian, what do you want to tell us tonight? So in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina, select prisoners in Mississippi were taught basic mandarin to help with the recovery efforts. Do you have any idea why?
5: Were they making something that was going to be used by the uh, people who had been displaced? They were not. They were not. Okay, well, there goes the sum total of my insight.
2: Were there there some sort of instructions that needed to be read in Mandarin? Yes. (laughs)
3: Nicely done, Annie Duke. Thank you. (laughs) I was going to guess that they just got a, a gifted shipment of kung fu movies but
7: close actually there probably were some kung fu movies in there uh all right clear up the mystery for us brian so when customs and border patrol seizes counterfeit goods they go back to the company whose products are being knocked off and they'll give them the choice of having the goods destroyed or they can be saved and used in the time of an emergency so after katrina the state of mississippi tapped into this stockpile using prison labor to help sort and distribute the goods. Since 70% of the counterfeit goods originate in China, it expedited things to teach the prisoners to read basic Mandarin to speed up sorting all the boxes. So after all this was over, the prisoners walked away with a sense of civic pride, some time off of their sentences, as well as a little bit of Mandarin in their pockets.
3: So were there teachers, or were they doing it Rosetta Stone style?
7: It was... It was a, there were a few people that worked in the Dep- Department of Economic Development that had been, they go overseas and they try to woo companies. So they knew the basic Mandarin. And that's how they taught the prisoners.
2: Well, that's excellent because I hear that all our jobs are in China. So when they got released, they could go there. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Hey, I want to hear a little more about uh, counterfeit goods generally being reclaimed and shipped to disaster relief or wherever. How, how, how much are we talking about?
7: Um, it depends on the types of goods. I, I, I don't think they keep everything that comes in. It's kind of a rolling stockpile of what might be needed or what's been recently seized. I, I mean, I heard a story recently of someone working in Haiti that received a shoebox full of breast milk in Ziploc bags.
2: Ew.
0: Sean, disaster recovery, counterfeit goods, teaching Mandarin to prisoners. It sounds like the kind of movie that wouldn't it's, get past yeah, the, the administrative assistant it in Hollywood. Be like a, might
6: be like a Disney movie. It's a nice story. <laughs> I'm not seeing a lot on the internet about this. I do see the breast milk thing. That's happening. The breast milk and baggies. Um, I, I, there's, you know, It says that Hurricane Katrina, that, like displaced survivors in the Astrodome, were having their choice of counterfeit and abandoned clothing, toys, and even dog food. Which leads me to ask, like, if you save your dog from a hurricane, at at that point you're like, now let me give it counterfeit dog food from China. How much do you love this dog? All right, Brian McGran, very interesting. Thank you so much for playing Tell Me Something I Don't Know.
0: (laughs) Would you please welcome our next contestant, Liz Sales. Okay, good. You comfortable there? Not really. (laughs) All right. uh, Liz, what's your story?
8: Uh, I'm an illustrator, children's book illustrator, and um, I also teach at the School of Visual Arts and at Queens College.
0: All right, Liz, take it away. What you got?
8: So what use might the U.S. Army have had for painters, comic book artists, and art students during World War II? Uh...
3: Draw up some pornography to distract you from the fact that you're in another war. Not quite. Maps. That's right. One or the other. Uh, hand drawing specialist.
5: Was it used on the home front or in the field?
3: In the field, in, in Europe. In the field, in, in the Europe. field. field. Caricature artist to keep the mood light.
5: That's right. Thanks for drawing my big nose. I feel so much better now. <laughs>
3: Now back to killing people. <laughs> yeah, right.
2: <laughs> were they drawing
8: the soldiers? Well, they did some of that. That was a little side job they did, but that wasn't actually part of their work.
0: All right. What's the story you have, Liz?
8: The story I have is that in World War II, my father was in a strange unit of the United States Army. It became known as the Ghost Army because of the illusions they created in order to fool the Germans about where the Allies were preparing to invade They created elaborate deceptions, like positioning hundreds of dummy tanks to look like a battalion was amassing, while giant speakers played recordings of tanks rumbling with uh, soldiers building bridges. And with all their fakery, the 1,100 men of the Ghost Army could seem like 30,000. Many of the soldiers of the Ghost Army were not typical military types. They were artists who were capable of pulling off such theatrics including a young Elsworth Kelly, who would become a renowned painter, and Bill Blass, who would create a fashion empire. The Ghost Army narrowly escaped capture in the Battle of the Bulge, and, according to General Patton, held the defensive line by the grace of God and with a lot of guts. The Ghost Army was classified top secret for decades, but are now credited with saving the lives of thousands of American soldiers. And my dad, not aware that it was top secret, told us he helped win the war with a bunch of artists and a lot of
7: dummies.
5: (laughs) So what did your father paint or make? Was it tanks, mainly?
8: Well, the Army provided these tanks. They were inflatable, and they would blow them up and set them up in the field. They would also put fake patches on their uniforms and... um, and they basically wanted the artists because they could visualize what something would look like, maybe from the air or from afar. Um, but in their spare time, they drew each other, and they painted like the scenery, the bombed-out villages, and the horror houses.
2: So they weren't—they weren't actually like they weren't creating like illusion. They—they were setting props up,
8: right? Gotcha. Right, and they would create like fake uh, headquarters and. Um, pretend to be generals, which was really fun because that was breaking all army regulations, which they enjoyed a lot.
5: Now, did the other side do that? So you'd have, like, one fake army versus another oh, that'd fake be army? that
8: would so great. It's yeah, like, oh, my
5: it. gosh, look how big. Oh, they're even bigger. <laughs>
8: <Yeah>. <laughs> well, everybody used some sort of camouflage and bluffery. And, um, but... I don't think the Germans had rubber tanks. That was, like, our big thing. <laughs> well,
0: we were technologically advanced. Yeah, yeah. we were very... <laughs> it's an amazing story. Um, Sean, was Liz's dad just kind of telling her war stories all these years, or did the Ghost Army do what she says? One
6: totally checks out. There's, like, lots of articles. There's photos of soldiers ho- holding up, like, fake tanks over their heads, which is awesome. <laughs> Um, There's even a PBS documentary about this uh, from 2013. It did come from the British. They did it first in 1942. The Germans apparently never did it. Uh, They fought a more sincere type of terrifying (laughs) war. Yeah. (laughs) They just wanted to kill
5: everybody for real, for real. Um, Yeah, that's the word that comes to my mind when I think about Nazis. (laughs)
6: It's sincere. But the, the coolest thing I saw Googling about it and all that stuff was that there's like, they have the real, the ghost army had like a badass insignia of this ghost throwing lightning bolts out of its <laughs> yes, hands. Yes. That was their symbol. And it looks like it would be like right at home for like a flyer for a Halloween party in Brooklyn or something.
0: Yeah.
6: Y'all got to go home and check that out. <laughs> Excellent. Great
0: stuff. Liz Sales, thank you so much. It's time for a short break now. When we return, more contestants, our panelists will pick a winner, and then we spin the wheel of maximum danger. If you'd like to be a contestant on a future show or attend a future show, please visit TMSIDK.com on social media. We're at TMSIDK underscore show. And please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Tell Me Something I Don't Know. I'm Stephen Dubner. Tonight's theme, Fool Me Once. We've been hearing amazing stories and facts about things that aren't quite what they seem. Would you please welcome our next contestant, Elizabeth Greenwood. Hello, Elizabeth. Give us a little intel on yourself, would you please?
9: I'm a writer, and I recently wrote a book about people who fake their own deaths Mm. and disappearance. Oh,
0: I love you already. All right, what do, you, uh, what do you have for us tonight, then?
9: In the summer of 1974, John Corbin, a Massachusetts lawyer and father of three, was on a business trip to Martha's Vineyard. He was completing a real estate transaction and knocked off early one afternoon to go for a swim. A few days later, his wife reported him missing. Police found his van parked at an isolated beach. Nearby was his gym bag containing his watch, clothes, glasses, and shoes. But one item was missing, which caused investigators to question the likelihood of his drowning. Any guesses?
3: His his wallet.
9: His wallet was there.
3: Oh, his asthma
9: inhaler. (laughs) Not that. <laughs> you said
5: one, one thing was missing
0: from the car? that
5: he Yeah, so from he, his
9: gym bag where he had all his possessions in the car.
0: And this is what led to the investigators mm-hmm. thinking that he'd faked his death, which he had, you're saying?
9: Questioning the likelihood of his drowning. All right. <laughs> put
0: us out of the stumpy. misery. What do you got?
9: It was his socks. I was going to say oh. socks. But well, why didn't you say if <laughs> you were going to say? It? Oh, because he would have taken and go answers. swimming. <laughs> Indeed. Who figured that out? That person was smart very smart because when the police looked more closely into Corbin's recent history they also discovered a mistress and recent additions to his life insurance portfolio mm. but the missing socks were the first tip that something fishy was underway when divers didn't recover a body corbin turned up in reno 3 years later so what did his mistress collect the life insurance she did But the biggest mistake Corbin made was faking his death by water. When we think about how we would commit suicide or faking your own death, we encounter this challenge of what to do about the body. So most of us dream up a drowning and think we're Jason Bourne. But a drowning where a body does not wash up within a few days will always raise red flags, especially if you've recently found yourself in legal, financial, or marital trouble. The best pseudocides are actually carried out with high-quality documents, death certificates, autopsy reports, and witness testimony of your untimely demise. In 2013, I died in the Philippines in a grisly car accident. Oh, you look good. Thanks. Yeah. Or at least that's what my death certificate states. I never filed the documents. I decided I still had a lot of living left to do. So I urge you not to fake your own death, especially by water. But if you do, remember to leave your socks.
0: Wowzer. You, so wait, you faked your own death for research?
9: As an experiment, indeed. I went to see how far I could get in the process. And? Got the death certificate. How? So how but how do you do that? <laughs> well, I... Uh, Got the of course, you know, <laughs> There's lots of different ways. It's deathcertificates.com. <laughs> <laughs> Sign right up. $4.99 it for your only. first one. I spent a few days in Manila with two local fixers there by the names of Snooky and Bong, mm-hmm. and Snooky huh? and Bong and I spent okay. a lot of time waiting on their mole they have in the government who siphons off official documents. Death certificates are an unusual request; usually, it's diplomas and driver's licenses. Um, but it was just a lot of a lot of waiting, really. And then there it was, and here I am. <laughs> so, are there? If
2: you have a death certificate from a particular jurisdiction is it more likely to get questioned like i don't know say the philippines
9: yeah, that's a great question. So there are certain countries like the Philippines where a lot of people do attempt overseas life insurance fraud, so especially without a body that will raise a lot of red flags, and especially if you're if you're trying to claim life insurance and your policy is over a certain dollar threshold, usually in the millions, and if you're like me and your net worth is like $40 in a scratch ticket, like that will probably get looked into a little bit more closely.
0: What's the incidence of people committing suicide? How common is it? Well, that's
9: one of the inherent paradoxes with studying this subject, because the people who pull it off successfully are presumed dead. We don't know about them. As far as life insurance cases, (laughs) so, who's to say? As far as life insurance fraud cases, some of the investigators I spoke to who look into this very expensive kind of fraud, um, they reckon the cases that just they look at are in the couple hundreds a year um, just for claiming that life insurance like fraud. Again, you don't have to claim life insurance fraud, so the numbers are tough to to really pin down. So do you know how Elvis did it? <laughs> yeah. He's, a, he's obviously living as an Elvis impersonator now, <laughs> to the best one. That's right.
0: In the Philippines.
9: In the Philippines. <laughs> That's
0: right. What are the reasons, beyond the financial of wanting to claim the insurance? Mm -hmm. And I guess, you know, what I think from watching TV is that people are in a jam. I mean, tell us a little bit more about why people do it.
9: Well, that's a big reason. Usually you found yourself in some kind of hot water if you are considering faking your own death. Usually you're trying to evade a prison sentence or sometimes you've lost a lot of money. One of the people uh, I interviewed in the course of my research is a man named Frank Ahern, who is a privacy consultant who helps people disappear. And those are the typical reasons he cited for his male clients, why they would seek out his services. But his female clients were typically in a violent, domestic violence situation. They were fearing for their lives, and they sought him out to help them really reclaim their lives, and he never charged them anything. Uh, That was all pro bono.
0: Hannibal, if you were to commit suicide, Mm -hmm. if you got in some kind of jam, which I can't imagine ever happening and you had to fake your death, what would be
3: the story that you would tell? It seems like, it seems so, it seems tough and tough to do. Mm -hmm. (laughs) No, but you just gotta, you gotta pray, you gotta, your friends gotta think you're dead, you gotta get new friends. (laughs) I love how you went right from worrying about your friends to just, I need new friends. (laughs) You gotta get new friends, you can't bounce back, they won't trust anything. (laughs) Sean,
6: how not to commit suicide? Uh, What can you tell us about it? This definitely happens a lot. My favorite that I found was John Darwin, a former teacher and prison officer from England who faked his own death in 2002 by canoeing out to sea and disappearing. His ruse fell apart when a simple Google search revealed a photo of him buying a house in Panama. Uh.
9: During that time, he actually lived in his own home. He returned to his... Community Amazing. he lived in his own house in an elaborate disguise. His wife was in on it with him. He obtained a passport in the name of a person called John Jones, who was born the same year as him, but died huh. in childhood. And he traveled to twelve different countries while he was dead. How <laughs> terrible
5: were the police in his yeah, town. That's great. Right. Uh, like, I mean, think like, about this. You, you look they, familiar.
9: These guys were like, Oh
2: ho, the socks are missing. And the guys in England were like, Should we look in his
5: house? <laughs> yeah. yeah,
2: He was canoeing. <laughs> He's like, that looks just like him in his house. <laughs>
5: right. I'm trying to think how many people that I've done funerals for are now are actually alive and walking around in disguise. <laughs> it, uh, uh, w-
3: what are the penalties if it's uh, not a, a fraud situation and it's just somebody hmm. that was sad,
9: asking for a friend? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. No, I'm saying because I,
3: I can see if it's insurance fraud, then that that will have its own. So penalty. there's
9: no law called faking your own death. Um, if you, but unfortunately a lot of the ancillary crimes that you would commit in order to live a second life are very much illegal. So life insurance fraud, that's illegal. If you're using someone else's social security number and identity, that's identity theft. Mm. But there is this very narrow st- stretch of territory you can occupy where you can fake your death and not do any of those things. It's a pretty dull existence, uh, but you can do it.
2: Wouldn't regardless there be like some sort of Fraud charges for like wasting the police's time. yeah, and that's
9: something that happens. Some people who have gotten caught um, in staging a drowning, say, and then been um, you know, returned to life, as it were, they will have to pay back for the cost of their search and rescue mission.
0: Elizabeth Greenwood, thanks for playing tell me something I don't know. Thank Great you. job. <laughs> Let's welcome our next contestant, Chris Cordero. Chris, you have the look of someone who is gainfully employed. What do you do? Uh, I'm a financial advisor with Region Atlantic.
2: But are you a disaster?
10: Uh, (laughs) I'll let you be the judge of that. Okay. What are you here to tell us, Chris? What is the one piece of retirement advice that financial advisors nearly always get wrong? Mutual funds.
0: (laughs) You said that with such conviction, I'm buying.
10: They it's always specifically get wrong.
2: about retirement or specifically in general?
3: about retirement. Did they <laughs> including yourself get it wrong? Or the most of uh, <laughs> them? That's, that's what I, I was thinking. I of. said nearly all of them get it wrong. <laughs> oh, you okay.
0: I don't know the answer, but it does strike me that between a comedian and a poker player, that probably the person up here with the best retirement plan is the priest, which is pretty weird. <laughs> right? I, you
9: probably <laughs> got a good
5: I have a, I take a vow okay. of poverty. I own zero. So I have a very bad retirement plan. Uh, but, but I'm actually planning to fake my own death, so that's going to... What does it have to do with... Um, but you get to we'll be...
2: retire for eternity.
5: Oh, well, so do you. So do you.
0: <laughs> we're all welcome. Um... <laughs> all right, Chris, you want to tell us what we're doing wrong?
10: Sure. So, uh, so, Stephen, don't you hate it when financial advisors tell you, give up that Starbucks latte and put the savings in your 401k? I I hate that when they I do hate that. Yeah. that. And, and you know what? Maybe, maybe that's not true. Maybe financial advisors are telling you to, sp- to save too much in retirement. No. Yeah. And here's, here's what I've seen. I've been doing this for 30 years. And generally, when you set somebody up for retirement, they're taking a monthly amount out of their portfolio, and that's what they're living on. Maybe it's 5000 a month. And you'd expect after about a year, they'd probably need a raise, right? Inflation's going up. Your latte's getting more expensive. But they don't take a raise. Why aren't they asking for one? Well, it's been shown that retirees generally consume about 1% to 2% less a year each year in retirement. So, because they're consuming less, they don't need that inflation. Even with healthcare costs, which is what everybody worries about. Even with healthcare costs. The healthcare costs are the one piece that does increase faster, but everything else seems to slow down a little bit each year, meaning maybe financial advisors are out there telling you to either work longer, save too much, spend less in retirement, or give up that
0: latte. And I'm saying, enjoy the latte. Retirement planning might be easier than you think. All right. So, so first of all, you're a financial planner saying that people don't need to save as much. What's your angle? Because well. like. <laughs>
10: Well, you could say maybe there's a conspiracy theory out there, right? Because most financial advisors get paid on how much you save. Yeah. So there could be a conspiracy theory. But
0: you're different from all of them. Well, of, course, well.
10: I'm, of course I am. But you're saying <laughs> so, the data
0: show, actually, that people don't run out of money or don't spend they, as much money.
10: They don't spend as much money as they forecast in retirement. Now, the other bad part is most people don't save as much as they need. But they're getting it wrong if they're thinking that they're Consumption in retirement is going to keep increasing each year. It's Actually, keep, it decreases a little
5: bit each
3: year. What if you want two lattes? <laughs>
5: <laughs> now, does it decrease because they're getting more worried about their, their savings? and they get more and more nervous as no, they get no, older? No, no, they just get older. So
10: early in retirement, there's the go-go years, then there's the slow-go years, and then there's the no-go years.
2: Mm-hmm. Ah. That's
10: right. And, they're in, and, and so then in the no-go
0: years... That's not the first time you said that. You're not really going. <laughs> <laughs> so this, I'm curious if this applies to the kind of people who are pretty disciplined or fairly high income. But what about all the others that we hear about are not saving? Enough? Yeah, so are you talking about really kind of the top of the pyramid? And there's, there's no, it's,
10: it's across the board. There's, there's good data on this from a couple of different sources. Bureau of Labor Statistics, J.P. Morgan. And uh, J.P. Morgan sliced it by wealth level. Uh, and what you see is that across the board, consumption does decline. Now, there are different pockets of where money might be spent is different in different wealth levels, but across the board, that consumption typically declines.
0: All right, so, Sean, we'll call this one, uh, you know, Stop Saving So Much Money for Retirement, also known as Cat Food is Tastier Than You Think.
2: Uh, yeah. there you go.
6: What do you know, Sean? Yeah, I'm glad we're on the Upper West Side right now because being at risk of saving too much money sounds like what we call an uptown problem where I live.
10: <laughs>
6: Chris Cordero, thanks for playing Tell Me Something I Don't Know.
0: And it pains me to say this, only because it's so much fun, but would you please welcome our last contestant tonight, Zachary Berger. Yeah. Zachary Berger, um, tell us your life story in, you know, 15, 20 seconds.
11: Well, millions of years ago, the earth was covered by a vast sea. Oh, I'll I'll fast forward. Then I emerged from my mother's womb. And then um, I'm now an internal medicine physician at Johns Hopkins in lovely Baltimore, Maryland. Um, I've written several books, the latest of which is called Making Sense of Medicine. All righty.
0: Our theme tonight, as you've heard, is fool me once. Um, As our final contestant,
11: I'd like you to take us out with a bang. What do you have? What proportion of medical advice is based on the best scientific evidence?
2: I'm I'm guessing it's quite low. I, I, I just read something about the likelihood of people recommending within their own specialty which was really quite high. There was just something that if the doctor explained to the patient that they might have a bias about what they were recommending, that the patient was actually more likely to accept it, even though the doctor had just said, like, by the way, I'm totally biased. They were like, cool, then you're honest. I want to go with it. Whoa. So, So, <laughs> true.
0: And by best scientific evidence, you mean, you're, are you talking about basically what we think of as evidence-based medicine, in other words, based
11: on evidence period that's good? So it's a great question. But evidence-based medicine, just to put it in
3: buzzwords. Uh, One one question um, on a similar front. What what do you think the probability of you giving me an Adderall prescription is? All
4: right,
11: Dr. Berger, you want to give us the answer? Sure. So for most medical decisions, there is no one right answer. But even for those things where there is a single right answer, most doctors don't behave on the basis of science, but rather according to their own personal quirks, institutional biases, or just received lore. So I'll give you some examples. Um, For people with garden variety, low back pain, right? In more than 50% of the cases, people end up getting an x-ray, CAT scan, or MRI. Now, those images aren't necessary. In fact, they can lead to unnecessary surgeries and procedures, which can be associated with harm. I'll give you one more fact. In people with sinus infections, sinusitis, uh, about 80% of those people get antibiotics. However, most sinus infections are caused by viruses, and viruses are not treated by antibiotics. And these antibiotics can also cause harm. So why is this all going on, right? Why? There's, I think there's many answers. One is some doctors don't know the science, right? Great point. One is that people want something from their doctor tangible, to feel like they're getting something, right? And uh, another, another is that it takes time for good science to percolate throughout the world. But I think the real answer is sort of deeper and broader, and that is that our healthcare system prioritizes doing stuff, right? Because you can bill for stuff. And our healthcare system does not prioritize listening to people, talking to them as individuals, and as people with needs, and doesn't prioritize really asking questions and getting to know someone. It prioritizes billing. And that's why most doctors do stuff that's not based on medical evidence or scientific evidence.
3: I just ruined my day.
11: <laughs> oh, I just made my day. I, I get
5: sinus infections, uh, upper respiratory and lower back pain. Now I'm never going to the doctor again. There you go. It's awesome. <laughs> just like wait it go. out.
0: Yeah, but... So are we improving? or I shouldn't say not we, we're not doctors. Are you improving? Am I, am I personally improving? Are the you doctor? guys getting better? If, if you're saying that this is like, that most medicine is kind of hunch-based
11: medicine instead of evidence-based medicine. Where are we moving now? That's such a deep question. I'm, I sure as hell hope I'm getting better as a, you know, as a doctor, but I think um, our healthcare system is doing some things better at a very slow rate of improvement. Like we're doing better at some things, right? We're sending less people back to the hospital after they get out of the hospital. So we're doing better on that, right? Are we treating people black and white equally, right? No, we're doing a shitty job on that in in our healthcare system. So we're not doing better on that at all. So certain things we're doing better on, certain things we're doing worse on.
5: Do you think it's because people want something when they leave? Like you you, you just want a pill or... To make them feel like they've gotten something, it's not just you know worthless to go and see the doctor. Is that the idea? Yeah, I think yeah. that
11: when people want an objective correlative, right? They want right. to say, "I saw the doctor and I got this thing," you know. And whether or not you needed it, you know. Sometimes I'll I'll, I'll tell you a secret that most prostate exams, you know, that whole that whole wonderful narrative we started the show with, right? Most of those exams aren't necessary. This is really the kind of bang I was
0: hoping to go out on. <laughs> Sean, uh, hunch-based medicine, you know, most of it, most of what doctors do is either useless or wrong or hurtful. What do you know?
6: Yeah, there's a lot of of research about this that says that, you know, most prescriptions are misleading, exaggerated, and often flat-out wrong. And as much as 90% of the published medical information that doctors rely on is flawed, which made me sad at first. But, like, between not saving my lattes and, like, not going to the doctor anymore, I'm saving a shit ton of money now. (laughs) So, that's the good news. Thanks, Obama. Hey,
3: (laughs) quick. Hey, do do doctors like you look down on podiatrists?
0: (laughs) Dr. Berger, thank you so much. And that concludes our round of audience contestants. Let's show all of them our appreciation. Thank you. All righty, and now it is time for our panelists to rank their favorites and to pick a winner. Remember, the three voting criteria: Did the contestant tell you something you truly did not know? Was it worth knowing? And was it true or at least truish? Okay. So, who's it going to be? Doctor Zachary Berger and hunch-based medicine. Chris Cordero and Stop Saving So Much for Retirement, Elizabeth Greenwood and How Not to Commit Suicide, Liz Sales and The US Ghost Army, Brian McGran and Counterfeit Do Goods, or A.E. Kieran and Invisible Hands. While the votes are being tallied, we'll take a short break. When we come back, we'll announce a winner and we'll make the panelists compete against one another when we spin the wheel of maximum danger. I'm Stephen Dubner. This is Tell Me Something I Don't Know. If you would like to be a contestant on a future show, please visit TMSIDK.com. While we are waiting for the vote count, I think now would be a good time to see what our live illustrator A.E. Kieran came up with. Brian, can we put that image up on the screen? Oh oh. Whoa. Wow. What are we seeing hand wise? So (laughs) where are the hands.
3: Uh, Okay.
0: All right. We're gonna put we'll put these illustrations up on our website, TNS so podcast listeners can check it out. Thanks, AE. Yeah. All right, the panelists' votes are in. I'd like to say once again thanks to all our contestants. The top three vote-getters joining us back up on stage are, in third place, with his IDK About Invisible Hands, A.E. Kieran, come on back up. (laughs) In second place with an IDK about how not to commit suicide, Elizabeth Greenwood. Well done. Yeah. And tonight's winner, tell me something I don't know, with her IDK about the Ghost Army, Liz Sales oh. I'd like to congratulate all of you. Thank you so much for bringing your wisdom to our stage. Now... For our winner, Liz, what prize could we possibly give you tonight that's even commensurate with uh, the story you told tonight? Well, do you remember back at the top of the show when we heard about the invention of that
4: robotic rectum? (laughs) It provided realistic feedback to your fingers um, and helps people to understand how to be firm but not too firm when investigating a prostate. That's right. We are giving
0: you... No, not a robotic rectum. (laughs) They're a bit pricey for a show like ours. But we do have for you a voucher entitling you to three pairs for you and your friends of heavy-duty fleece-lined rubber gloves. All right? They're perfect for all your dirtier household chores and, of course, uh, inspecting rectums, robotic or otherwise. There you go. Thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you. Congratulations, Liz, and one more time, let's show our appreciation for all our contestants. Thank you so much. Great job. And now it is time for the final round of Tell Me Something I Don't Know in which we flip the script and turn our panelists into contestants. It's time for them to tell us something we don't know, but not on a topic of their choosing they get to tell us something we don't know on a topic chosen completely at random from what we like to call our wheel of maximum danger. That's right. It is a spinning wheel of 12 what? topics that relate to tonight's theme, Fool Me Once. Here's how the wheel is going to work tonight. Our fact checker, Sean, will spin the wheel for each of you and pick a topic. Then you'll get a few minutes to think. And then you'll tell us something we don't know on that topic, and our audience will pick a winner. On the very slight chance right. that one of you tries to fabricate an answer, remember, uh, we have a real-time human fact-checker right there. So, Sean, would you please spin the wheel first for Father James Martin? Here we go. Florida. Florida. <laughs> Sean, you want to spin it for Annie Duke?
6: Let's do it. Fads. Fads. All right, spin Why for I don't Hannibal don't
2: have
6: Burst. Alright, one more. Here we go. Let's switch.
2: Will you I'll switch. Can we switch?
6: Looks like conspiracy theories for Zephiel Hannibal.
3: Zephio can't melt steel babes. <laughs> 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 uh,
0: panelists, um, good luck with your topics. We'll give you a little while now to come up with something good.
2: We should just agree to switch. We can it's do that. It's all right.
0: That. I don't know about fads either. Oh, you don't? While the panelists are coming up with their IDKs, let me say this. We would really appreciate it if you tell your friends and family, anyone you know, about this new show of ours. Also, subscribe and maybe give it a rating on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to come tell me something I don't know, or if you want to be in our studio audience, please visit TMSIDK.com. You can also find us on all the usual social media outlets at TMSIDK underscore show. Okay, time's up, panelists. Let me just say right now, it's been an absolute blast having all of you. Thank you so much for being here tonight. And in our eyes, you are, of course, all winners. But technically, when it comes to the Wheel of Maximum Danger, there's only one winner. So we're going to start with Father James Martin. Tell us something we don't know about Florida.
5: The Jesuits, my religious order, also known as the Society of Jesus, which is also the religious order of Pope Francis, runs a high school uh, in Miami called Lane High School, uh, which was originally set up for emigres um, from Cuba. Uh, and the high school that was in Cuba uh, was called Dolores High School, where we educated Fidel
0: Castro. Ooh. Not bad, Thank Sean. You. Get to work on that one, though, fast. Can Annie I, Duke, you drew fads, yeah, which I, seemed I just, to delight you, then seemed to perplex no, you. No,
2: it never delighted me. I just want to say for a guy who claimed to have nothing on Florida...
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's my that one really, thing, though. That's it. If you
2: push me more, that was pretty good. Thank
0: you. You know, that's all. Being a priest, I think, is all about under promising and over delivering.
2: <laughs> <laughs> that is so true.
0: Or
5: vice versa. Or You're vice right. versa. <laughs>
2: I really have nothing about fads, so I'm I'm, I'm just going s- to switch to cosmetic surgery.
8: <laughs>
5: so
2: here's a, here's a here's a fun fact. There was a guy named Brian the Wiz. So just so you know, everybody in poker, it's not like you're just like, hey, I'm John Smith. It's always like, Brian the Wiz. Uh, so poker players always make like these crazy bets. So uh, Brian the Wiz was offered $100,000 if he would get breast implants, a C cup. Uh, so this, was, this happened like in the early 90s late 80s. And I knew Brian the Wiz. So the interesting thing, because this has fooled me once, is that Brian was a magician. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, yeah, so he, he was offered $100,000 to get breast implants, and he did, and he had to keep them in for a year. Ugh. And he didn't like, he chest hair and everything. It was Anyway, he did it, and then uh, th- I, as long as I knew him, he never took them out because he always said it was really good for getting girls. So this was a really weird wait, thing. Wait, wait, back up. How? I don't know <laughs> if you guys know many magicians, but they're, they learn magic because they're not naturally good with the ladies. So... So anyway, it was like, hey, can you believe it? I have breast implants. And the girls were like, really? And it was like an icebreaker, I guess. Anyway, so...
3: Fan. Well,
2: yeah, so that was... There you go. That's Brian the Wiz.
0: <laughs> Brian the Wiz and his, uh, and his breast implants. C-cup. All right, Annie Duke. Um, Hannibal, uh, tell us something we don't know about conspiracy theories.
3: Uh, one conspiracy theory is that... Uh, that whole thing was set up to give that guy Brian silicone poison it. Oh, <laughs> nice. Also, Ronald Reagan's war on drugs was meant to destroy the black community. <laughs> That's all I got on conspiracy theories. Jet fuel can't melt steel beams. Jet fuel can't melt steel beams. All right, so we're going to
0: call that one breast silicon Reagan jet fuel. Sean, you haven't had much time to look.
6: Not a ton. Um, Turns out Fidel did go to that school, so did his brother Raul. Um, Brian the Wiz's breast implants, what I would say to everyone at home and in the audience right now, don't Google image that. Uh. (laughs) Because you cannot unsee it. (laughs) It is true. And... uh, when I Googled the Ronald Reagan thing, my, my computer just shut down, and now it says jet fuel can't melt steel beams all over it. So I'm just going to turn it, turn it off. All right. It's time for our live audience to pick a winner.
0: Get out your phones. Follow the texting instructions on the screen. Keep in mind the criteria for the panelists. IDKs, did they tell you something you didn't know? Was it worth knowing, and was it true, or at least a little bit true, who will it be tonight, the Jesuit priest James Martin and the education of Fidel and Raul Castro? Will it be Annie Duke who hopped categories, abandoned fads, went with cosmetic surgery, told us about Brian the Wiz and his breast implants, or... Hannibal Burris and his many conspiracy theories, mostly involving Republican politicians, as well as jet fuel. We'll give you a few moments now to vote. The live voting is closed, the votes are being tallied, and I have been handed the results. In third place, also known as last place, 13%. And I feel like I should apologize on behalf of our audience, Hannibal Burris, because I think that you deserved a solid uh, 17.
5: (laughs) (laughs) It's a conspiracy. It's
0: a conspiracy. (laughs) It's very disappointing. (laughs) In second place, with 30% of the vote, is Annie Duke, which makes tonight's winner, Father James Martin. Congratulations. (laughs) that is our show tonight thank you so much to our panelists James Martin Annie Duke and Hannibal Burris thanks to all our contestants and thanks especially to you for coming to play tell me something I love once again this is the final episode of tell me something I don't know for this season but we will be back very soon with new shows taped in New York City boston washington dc maybe elsewhere to buy tickets or to take a shot as a contestant please visit tmsidk.com and you can find us on social media at tmsidk underscore show tell me something i don't know is produced by dubner productions in partnership with the new york times our staff includes allison hockenberry emma morgenstern harry huggins and brian gutierrez David Herman is our technical director. He also composed our theme music. Thanks also to Andrew Dunn, Dan DeZula, Jolenta Greenberg, and to Dan Schreiber, our transatlantic game doctor. Thanks to the New York Times, especially Charles Duhigg, Kinsey Wilson, Samantha Hennig, Diantha Parker, Lisa Tobin, and to our good friends at Qualtrics, whose online survey software has been so helpful in putting on this show. You can subscribe to Tell Me Something I Don't Know on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts or at nytimes.com slash IDK. You can find us online at tmsidk.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks for listening.